for tuning in to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek are the New York Times bestselling authors of the book Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 55-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. In early 2019, we recorded an interview with them, which you'll hear in this episode. This was recorded at a Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit, which took place in Annapolis, Maryland. The event was devoted to the concept of resilience, the ability to navigate adversity and absorb failure and loss in high-risk settings. We explored the concept from the individual, team, and organizational level, as well as from a physical, mental, emotional, and moral perspective. Guest presenters included FDNY Black Sunday survivor, firefighter Brendan Cauley, Columbia University's Dr. George Bonanno, and Dr. Preston Klein and Coleman Ruiz of the Mission Critical Team Institute, just to name a few. You can hear audio from the entire summit by visiting leadershipunderfire.com. To help listeners gain context for each summit discussion, LUF founder Jason Bresler and I discussed our reflections shortly after the event. So you're about to hear that conversation and then the live recording of the event. Jason, the summit concluded with authors Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek. Why did we end with them? So when we think about resilience, organizational, team level, anyone who's familiar with naval history is familiar with USS Indianapolis. Torpedoed at sea, roughly 900 crew members go into the, the ocean, 300 of them perish relatively quickly, 600 are lost at sea for several days in shark-infested water. Of those 600, 300 live to tell the tale. That story has received a considerable amount of attention right, in the years, the years following World War II, both in film and in, and in books. Then I stumbled upon Lynn and Sarah's newly released Indianapolis book. Shortly after it was published, I remember reading mm-hmm. about the New York Times book review. I'm embarrassed to say this, particularly as a Naval Academy graduate and someone who arguably is a student of U.S. Naval history. I was familiar with what happened at sea. Mm. I was not aware of the fact that the the skipper of the boat, Captain McVeigh, was court-martialed for the episode at, at sea. And I was certainly unaware of the fact that he he took his own life years later as he struggled to come to terms with with more or less being separated from from the naval service. Lynn Vincent, incredibly accomplished author, I think she sold over ten million copies of her of her books, mm-hmm. several of which have been made into into movies. Sarah Vladek is a historian who's been passionate about the Indianapolis stories. They teamed up to write an incredibly compelling historically accurate account of the Indianapolis. And I thought ending this summit with a historical case study Mm. that everyone on the surface was familiar with the event would be a great way to end the summit. And at the very last minute, another special guest was able to participate in the discussion. Can you introduce him for our listeners in case it isn't clear in the recording? So Lynn and Sarah both traveled from the West Coast to Annapolis for the to Maryland for the summit. It just so happened they were doing another book talk that weekend 
since they were in the area. And Captain Bill, Bill Toady, who was a commanding officer of the USS Indianapolis in the late 90s when it was being decommissioned, had been contacted by the survivors of the Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is 50 years after, after the event. Many of them were still troubled by the fact that Captain McVeigh had, mm-hmm. hadn't been exonerated. They reached out to Captain Toady. He took up their cause, mm-hmm. navigated some resistance for the right reasons, and was able to have the U.S. Navy exonerate Captain McVeigh five, six decades after the uh, collision at sea. That was a surprise that we didn't anticipate, right, that we didn't plan for. Um, talk about value added, mm. having his having his perspective. Why I thought it would be beneficial to, to end with the Indianapolis case study is because there's not only just a, the aspect of physical resilience right. or emotional or psychological, there's also a moral component right. to all of this. And here was a man who several decades removed from Captain McVeigh made his mission Mm-hmm. To see that he was he was vindicated, so that all of the other remaining survivors could come to terms and experience peace, despite all that they had nav- they, that they had endured. Well, last but certainly not least, let's listen in. So first, I would just like to introduce our last guests for the 2019 Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit. All set. Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek have devoted more than a decade to researching and reporting the story of USS Indianapolis. For the better part of a century, the story of Indianapolis has been largely misunderstood thanks to their research and interviews with more than 100 survivors and eyewitnesses. Vincent and Vladek tell the complete story of the ship, her crew, and their final mission to save one of their own in the New York Times bestselling book, Indianapolis, the true story of the worst sea disaster in U.S. naval history and the 50-year fight to exonerate an innocent man. Lynn, Sarah, welcome. Thank you. We're going to play a trailer. I think that was a good way to start off this conversation. So first, how did each of you get involved in this project? There's a lot of things to dissect. It's a small story. Um, I actually heard about it when I was about 13, and it was in a World War II documentary that really covered the war in the Pacific, but it was reduced to a single line, which was, it was the ship that carried the bomb and was sunk and no one knew. And I thought, well, there has to be more to it than that. And so I went to the library, because Google didn't exist yet. (laughs) And there really, there was, a book that had come out, a couple books by then, but nothing really. Um, the last one that I could find was in, written in 1958, and nothing more. And so I thought, well, I wish there was more, but I think someone should make a movie about this. That was kind of where I was thinking. And so I graduated from college. I went to Pepperdine, and when I finished school, I thought, well, no one's told this story yet. I'm going to tell this story, and I wanted to do it as a movie, so I thought, oh, I could do this in a couple years, like right out of school. <laughs> like every 21-year-old thinks they can conquer the world, and um, reached out to the survivors of Indianapolis, and they you know, spoke to a gentleman named Paul Murphy, who was the chairman at the time, and he said, well, why don't you come to a reunion? So that was kind of my first introduction to the story and meeting the survivors, and I kept coming back, and 
went to their homes, visited their families, got to know them, and after a couple of years, they took me to a Denny's in Las Vegas, it was very fancy, <laughs> and asked me to be their storyteller. And so that was kind of how it all began, but it really was still gonna be a movie. So I started interviewing the guys. I wanted to write the screenplay and thought, I have to find out from the people who lived it what happened so I can tell it properly. Um, I don't know if you know this, Hollywood doesn't always depict things the way they happen. <laughs> and so <laughs> I wanted to change that. And by doing so, um, did these interviews and wrote a screenplay and then we took it to a major network and they said, this is the best thing we've seen since Band of Brothers, but we need to have it based on a book. I thought, well, crap, I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> um, I knew how to write screenplays, that's what I was doing for a living, and so uh, I asked families and family and friends and said, hey, you know, anyone know any writers? I need advice. And so, turns out my mother-in-law has a book club, and Lynn had spoken at this book club a few times or one time, actually, one, and time. one time, and so got her contact information, and I was terrified. Like, I didn't, you know, she's a best-selling author. She had written Heaven is for Real and Same Kind of Different as Me and these incredible books, and there's me, who's this dorky filmmaker, who's like, hi, can you help me? And um, <laughs> anyway, so I reached out and hoped that she would give me some advice, and that's kind of where the book thing kicked off. Yeah, and what she didn't know was that I was, uh, that I'm a Navy veteran, and she also didn't know that I let my faith govern my work. And I believe that God is sovereign and that he knows all the stories, past, present, future. And so I had been praying for two years to uh, come across an iconic World War II story that I could write. And um, you may know that there are uh, World War II stories that are as iconic as Indianapolis, but none that are more so. And so she called and asked, for advice, and I was like, all she wants is advice. I, I thought my prayer was answered. How can I manipulate this young lady into helping her? <laughs> Letting me help her, uh, but, it, but it turned out that... We were just great friends. Yeah, and that you, you actually wanted help, right? Well, as I got to talk to Lynn Moore and, and knew her resume, I was like, oh, I wonder if she'll write this with me. And so we didn't know that each other wanted to <laughs> both do this together. So, and I don't, we still don't really know the day we decided, but I will say that the, the thing that really did it for me was that when I, we'd spoken on the phone many times, and we both live in San Diego, but as you probably know, San Diego is not a small city, so you can drive two hours and still be in the same city. So we hadn't met, and this was a big meeting, and I had this perception of Lynn, like, that she was gonna show up in a sweater set carrying a Bible. <laughs> and, and she showed up on a Harley. And so I was like, all right, we can do this. This is gonna be good. This is gonna work. Yeah. This is gonna be a good partnership. So that was 2012, and then I had some other projects that I was working on. Um, and so we really started in earnest. I started in earnest reviewing the research that Sarah had done so far in 2014 and then really started in earnest, uh, you know, adding to that research in 2015. So it took us about three and a half years. Wow. Yeah. What a great collaboration. Yeah. <laughs> so let's uh, dive into this okay. story and start with Captain McVeigh, given that he has such a prominent role in the story of Indianapolis. And he received his formal education right here in Annapolis, class of 1920. Can you walk us through some of the key events in his personal life uh, and professionally up 
through the time he assumed command of the USS Indiana? Well, Charles B. McVeigh was, Charles Butler McVeigh, he was uh, a, a third. So his father was Charles Butler McVeigh II, and uh, his dad was an admiral. He was a very successful, successful excuse me, admiral. Um, and he was also pretty hard on his son. And so as McVeigh, the McVeigh in the story, uh, grew up, he felt this constant pressure to live up to, his, to what his uh, dad had done in the Navy. Um, when he was here in Annapolis at the Academy, he was kind of a ladies' man. He was known, uh, he, he was so handsome that even his, the other midshipmen thought he was handsome. And they gave him uh, the nickname Cherub. And, uh, but he didn't take the path that he could have as an admiral's son. He actually forged his own way. He was um, the skipper of an oiler. He was XO on the USS Cleveland, a light cruiser and he fought in the Solomon Islands in that position and earned a silver star for gallantry. Um, he later served as the, um, uh, on the Joint Intelligence Staff of the U.S. Joint Chiefs. And then he uh, took command of Indianapolis in November 1944 and um, earned uh, a bronze star at the Battle of Okinawa. So now that we've learned about the skipper of Indianapolis, could you describe the typical sailor on board? Well, the final sailing, stepping back just a little bit, in March of 1945, the Indianapolis was struck by a kamikaze, and nine men were killed, and the ship had extensive damage, so much so that she had to leave Okinawa the day before the invasion and then go back to the States for repair. And this was kind of the domino effect of why she ended up carrying the bomb. But in that time when she was at Mare Island, a third of the crew was kind of overhauled as well. So these were young sailors, brand new sailors that had just gotten out of school. You know, even the officers were brand, brand new. And so these are 16, 17, 18 year old kids that are from farms and have never seen an ocean, had never seen anything larger than a tractor. And they see the Indianapolis. And every one of the men when, when talking to them said, she was just magnificent. She was this beautiful 610 foot long ship. And you know they're going there for the first time, leaving home for the first time, and they're in charge of you know steering this ship. Things like this, where you know imagine giving a 16-year-old you know the, the keys to the flagship, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the flagship of the Fifth Fleet. And so, um, but they took their jobs very seriously. So they, you know, the other thing too is they were not career military. You know, it was a very different time where these were enlisted men, and they knew what they had to fight for, and they were fighting for the man next to them. And so they weren't, you know, seasoned. They were kids who'd never had swim lessons and were, you know, sent to war. So it was a different time and different set of people serving. Thanks for setting that up for us. What sort of operations and campaigns was the USS Indianapolis involved in during World War II? And um, were there any in particular that were critical? You mentioned a bomb. <laughs> Well, I'm really glad that you asked this question because for decades and decades, the story of the Indianapolis has been known as a sinking story and a shark story. And that was one of the main driving motivators that we had is that we wanted to restore her to her rightful place in naval history and American history. So she was um, commissioned in uh, 1930 and uh, christened in 1932. Mm -hmm 
and um, 610 feet long. There's a, um, I really want to show this. This is her christening photo. I don't know how well you can see it, but it, she was very slim and narrow across the beam, and so we call this picture Sexy Indy <laughs> because she was just a beautiful ship. And as soon as she was uh, commissioned, or not commissioned, but christened, um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt chose her as his ship of state. And so she uh, was painted in this beautiful white peacetime paint, and she went down to South America on a good neighbor cruise and uh, was actually the first ship to, to carry a sitting president outside um, the continental US. And so then when war came, uh, she was tapped by Admiral Raymond Spruance as the flagship of the Fifth Fleet. Um, if you are familiar with naval history, you'll know that the Third Fleet was uh, um, commanded by Admiral Bull Halsey. And that was the same ships, but they called it Third Fleet when uh, Bull was in charge, and then Fifth Fleet when Admiral Spruance was in charge. And the reason he chose Indianapolis is because she was one of the fastest ships in the Navy, but she was a little bit older, and he wanted to preserve the other ships, like um, uh, battleships and carriers. He, he didn't necessarily need uh, the best, most te technologically advanced ship for his flagship, because if his ship got taken out, he did not want to weaken the fleet. So he chose Indianapolis, and um, really, a lot of the Pacific War, the island hopping campaign that built the bridge from Pearl Harbor to Japan was uh, conducted from the decks of Indianapolis. And so, you know, some of the famous campaigns were the Marshall Islands, the Gilbert Islands, uh, the Marianas Islands, uh, which in include um, Guam, Saipan, Tinian. And um, really most famously, uh, the, you know, two of the most famous battles of World War II, Iwo Jima and Okinawa. Um, Spruance commanded Iwo Jima from Indianapolis, and he had under his command 250,000 Marines uh, and soldiers, and I can't even remember how many ships. I think 1,200 ships. I mean, we can't, we don't even have 1,200 ships in our Navy today, but 1,200 ships, it was the zenith of naval power. And um, then, as Sarah mentioned, on March 31st, uh, that's tomorrow, right? Yeah. March 31st, 1945, she was hit by a kamikaze and taken out of the fight. So I do want to talk about the sinking. And um, just after midnight on July 30th, mm -hmm. 1945, the USS Indianapolis was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. Mm -hmm. Some 500 men go down with the ship. Nearly 900 make it into the water alive. Uh, for the next five nights and four days, these men are virtually lost at sea. Lynn and Sarah, you have spent a decade interviewing more than 100 of these men. Can you please tell us about their ordeal? Mm -hmm. Well, I, starting with the sinking, I mean, to set the stage for this, this is the backwaters of war by this point. Everyone is gearing up, heading toward um, the mainland invasion. You know, they're amassing in the Philippines and they're preparing to go in November. And so at this time, McVeigh, the captain of the ship, is told that they're safe. The waters that they're gonna be traveling in essentially are fine. You know, you can, they're gonna report for training. This is the first time that he's gonna be able to have these young men go through proper training. And you know they're setting out to what they believe is an uneventful trip, and so 
the captain does not, you know, he goes to bed that night, he says, see zigzagging, it's a tactic to evade Japanese torpedoes, um, says this because he doesn't feel that there's a threat. There's also heavy moon cover, so, you know, he doesn't think that the ship will be spotted. Well, just after midnight, the clouds open up, the moon comes out, and that happens to be exactly when the Japanese submarine surfaces and spots Indianapolis. And so, I believe it's four minutes after midnight, he fires a fan of torpedoes, two of which hit the ship. The first one hits at the 12th frame, ripping off the bow. And at this point, the ship is doomed. But a second torpedo hits, and this sets off explosions, pulling, ripping out the power on the ship and essentially killing all communications. They had no way to communicate with any other part of the ship. If there were lights, they were taken out, and these men don't know what hit them, literally. And so, you know, they're trying to figure out what's going on. The ship is starting to list, and because they can't communicate with the engine room, it's still pushing forward with no bow now. So she's just cruising along, scooping up water, going into all her compartments and starting to list. And the men are doing everything they can to get everyone topside, to communicate this, to communicate if they can save the ship. You know, they had just gone through the kamikaze attack earlier in which they saved the ship. So in the captain's mind, he has to be thinking, well, we did it before, we can do it again. And assessing the damage that's coming in, and it's all verbal communication. It's, you know, passing man to man. They're going down to radio trying to get an SOS out. Um, one of the incredible stories is of a radio man um, What's his rank? Woods? Chief Warrant Officer Wood. Chief Warrant Officer Woods, who stayed on the ship as she's sinking, keying out, trying to get the SOS out. And because they, had, they didn't have power, they didn't have any confirmation that the SOS was going out. But he sacrificed his life getting that, trying to get that message out. What they didn't have was the coordinates. And so they couldn't tell, even if they were getting a message out, they couldn't tell anybody where they were. And so this was part of the problem later. And, and so these men are now, you know, the ship is going like this, like this, and it's starting to go up. Fan tail, or I'm sorry, tail. I'm hearing myself twice. Mm -hmm. uh, the tail is going up, and as she's sinking, men are still coming off the ship. Um, one survivor, Harold Bray, said it was like ants on a stick, and they were just coming off until the last minute. And the ship sank in 12 minutes, so we've been talking longer than that, just to give you an idea. And pitch black, again, no communication, and they're doing everything they can to survive, to help each other, to communicate. And then they're left in the middle of the Pacific. No one knows they're there. And about, I think about 30 men were able to get on rafts, but everybody else had either nothing or life jackets. And so they were swimming. So this whole time, you know, they're, you see these, these movies where they have the survivors in rafts. Well, this isn't the case. They're out there in the middle of the Pacific, it's pitch black and they're alone. And they don't know, still really don't know what happened. And um, I, I wanna just give a little uh, additional um, context here. Prior to Indianapolis sailing, it was known that there was a Japanese submarine threat west of the Marianas Islands but this was uh, classified top secret ultra, so only a few people got this very highly classified intelligence. Um, under normal practice, that intelligence should have been sanitized and passed down to the fleet, but it wasn't in this case. So um, the people on the western, or the western side of the Pacific knew Indianapolis was coming. The people on the eastern side in Guam knew she had departed. 
And even on the day that she sank, uh, people down on the southern part of the Philippine Sea in Palau did a radio check to test the new communication gear. And that radio check went out to these various points that I've mentioned, and also to Indianapolis. But when she didn't respond, they were like, oh, the new radio gear is probably just broken. We'll, you know, we'll test it again when she contacts us. And so there were, there were these communication failures. So here's Indianapolis, as Sarah mentioned, and now there are a little under estimated 900 men in the ocean. And in the first 24 hours, the most badly wounded men died. Um, they, were, they were catastrophically burned. Uh, they were broken limb. They were blistered. And um, so no one is really sure how many men died the first night, but we think somewhere around 100. And then the other men spread out in groups. When, when the ship sank, as Sarah mentioned, it kept going forward. So as soon as the torpedoes hit, some men abandoned ship without orders. But then the ship kept going forward and, and people bailing out all along the way. So initially, they were spread out by about a mile. And then over time, they were spread out over 25 miles, um, right, mm -hmm. from, from end to end. And they, and they just kept dispersing. But they began to coalesce in groups. The largest group was what we call a, the swimmer group. And that was about 400 men. And all the, most of them had life jackets. The ones that didn't have life jackets clung to each other. And um, there was a very heroic Marines. How many Marines do we have? I know one, for sure. A heroic Marine named uh, Captain Park, who just was tireless about swimming around and keeping these men together and encouraging them. And they had one piece of gear, one piece of gear. And it was a single line about 100 feet long. And so Captain Park had them form that line into a ring and had them tie, tie into the line. Um, very quickly, uh, things began to deteriorate, but on the first day, they all thought rescue was on the way. But it wasn't. Right. Do you want me to keep going? Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so they think rescue is on the way, especially the radio men, because they, they think that they got this SOS off. But of course, they had no way of knowing that even if the SOS got off the ship, uh, number one, no position. Number two, they didn't know if anybody received it. So, um, but that first day, there was a lot of optimism. And when I say the first day, I'm talking about from midnight on July 30th on to the first morning. And um, then Monday morning hits, and then the famous visitors arrive, the sharks. And there's so many stories around this, and most people have heard of it because of the sharks. But one of the ones that really affected me, and I should say I used to be a scuba diver. Now I'm not so sure. But um, L.D. Cox talked about, you know, he was holding on to a raft or a floater net. And he said, all of a sudden, a shark came up and grabbed his best friend, his buddy, right next to him and pulled him under the water. And it was so close, the wave went over him. And no one knew when the sharks were coming or who they were going to get indiscriminately killing. And this happened time and time again. And then another instance is there was a group of men all on a, a floater net. And a gentleman by the name of Eugene Morgan said that they were all there. And then the sharks, a whole, like a swarm of sharks came and attacked this net. And then all of a sudden they were gone. Every, the, everything, the net, the men were all gone. And these are the things they're facing over and over. And um, every man that I talked to kept repeating, the worst part was the scream. 
And so to hear, you don't know when it's coming, but you hear the scream, you know exactly what's happening, this blood curdling scream. And they knew another one of their crew members were gone. And so, you know, they're not just surviving the water and the elements, the heat, everything going on. They, at every moment, are afraid for their lives and don't know who is next. And the shark population in the South Pacific at that time was much greater than it is today. And the water was so clear that they said they could see 50 feet down before, you know, it kind of became opaque. And they said that, you know, there were just these, not dozens or scores, but literally hundreds of sharks circling. And there were small ones and big ones. And the small ones actually were more vicious than the big ones. Um, and, but sharks weren't the only problem. They, they began to suffer from dehydration. They began to suffer from exposure, uh, from hunger. Um, and the dehydration had a, a really horrible effect of, of clouding their judgment. So, you know, the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner has the famous uh, verse, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Um, and that's the situation they were in. So as their judgment became clouded and they became more and more thirsty, some of the men succumbed to the idea that they could drink the salt water. Uh, some of them uh, thought they could strain the salt water out, so they, or the salt out of the water. So they, one man would hold a piece of torn uniform cloth over the other one, other one's mouth and, and pour the water through. But of course that didn't do anything. And so this, um, this condition of, of saltwater poisoning is called hypernatremia. And what would happen is, is that their blood, their, they would die awful deaths. They would vomit, foam at the mouth. Their blood, blood cells would, or their blood vessels would tear loose. And they would just go insane. The, the, their brains would short circuit, you know, like when a, a branch hits a high power line, you know, like that. And so by the third night, uh, violence started to break out. Mm -hmm. There, well, one of the things we didn't talk about earlier was the fact that when the ship was sinking, the, engineer, the chief engineer tried to release the fuel oil to ballast, to offer ballast for the ship. And what that did is it covered the men in this thick, thick oil that could only be removed by heat. And so, you know, they're covered, they're thick black oil. All you can see is white eyes and teeth. And so these men, when they start losing their mind, start thinking the guy next to them is our enemy. And they start attacking each other. And that's where the, they all say that Wednesday or the, the third night was the worst night because they were out of their minds. They didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to survive. People were just fighting to live. And it got, it got really bad. Other kind of injuries that they would sustain being in the water for that long or reaction? Their skin became very loose and tender. Also, um, as, as the, the sharks weren't the only creatures in the ocean, obviously, and interestingly, as their skin softened, little fish would come up and try to eat their fingers. And, you know, so their fingers became very uh, tender and sensitive. And, and then pretty soon, these life jackets were only made to last, what, 48 hours? 72. 72 hours, yeah. and they were in the water for over 100 hours. And so pretty soon, these life vests that had been keeping them afloat began to drag them down. And then their fingers were so uh, softened and mangled by the fish that they couldn't untie the vests. So, you know, it was just like insult to injury. This event is obviously revered as one of the most harrowing in US military history. 
from a resilience perspective, are there any common themes and threads among the men who survived that you interviewed? Well, I think Sarah likes to talk about Dick Thielen. Dick mm -hmm. Thielen was uh, the, the man in the video who said, well, hell, we thought this is where we're going to die. Um, and just. Yeah, there, so Dick was 17 and just turned 18 right before they left. And so. And he's still living, by the way. Yes, yeah, still living in Michigan. <coughs> and uh, so when he left, you know, the kamikaze had happened, and, you know, he knew that the ship was in uh, Mare Island, and he thought, ah, you know, VE Day had happened. So he's like, ah, Dad, nothing to worry about. I'm just going to go serve my time and come back. And his dad, you know, grabs his hand with a firm handshake and a look in his eye and says, Dick, you come home. And he said, that's what kept him alive. Every time he was going to try to give up, he saw his father's face, and he, he would not give up. And then there were so many instances of hope. You talked to the men, they said, I just, I knew I was going to survive. If there were two men left, I'd be one of them. There was this continuous message of hope and never giving up. And, you know, it even resonated with our own work on days when if it got harder or we were frustrated or something, you know, you think what they went through, and you think, well, if he is not going to give up, I sure as hell have to and faith, faith was also a huge theme. There were, uh, there were a couple of men who said that if there were any atheists, if there were any men who were atheists when they went into the water, they weren't atheists after that. There, there was an exception to that, however. There was a, a survivor named Donald Blum who, you know, had some, I think, pretty challenging questions. You know, if, 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 if God is so powerful and he's benevolent, why did he put us in this mess in the first place? You know, but the vast majority of men really clung to their faith, and and that is not to say that the men who died didn't have faith. But I'm just saying what the survivors said: those who clung to their faith, uh, they they really relied on it. They also relied on uh, the courage of other men. Um, for example, there was one of the rescue ships, the USS Cecil J. Doyle. Who was uh, that was commanded by uh, William Graham Clater, who actually later became Secretary of the Navy. Well, um, in World War II, when they darkened ship at night, that was like a religion. You kept that ship dark because even a cigarette light would show an enemy submarine commander where you were. So when uh, the survivors were finally spotted, and I, I guess we'll get to that, um, it was going to be 12 hours before any rescue ships could get there. And, he, and Graham uh, Clater had heard over the radio that there were hundreds of men in the water, and he knew that many of them were probably giving up hope. And so he gave an order that made the hairs on the backs of his crew's neck stand up. And the order was, take the 24-inch spotlight and point it at the sky. And so these men had never heard such an order because they were hiding even their, their glowing cigarettes. And so this brilliant tower of white light goes up in the sky. And so many of the men that were about to give up saw that light that was still an hour away, and they knew that there was a destroyer on the way. And, that's, and some of them said that if he hadn't turned on that spotlight, they would not have lived. Do you want to talk about the rescue now? We love to talk about the rescue. <laughs> That's our favorite part. Go ahead. So on the afternoon of the third day, there was a lieutenant by the name of Wilbur Gwynn who was flying a routine patrol. 
and he was testing out a new antenna that he had on the back of the plane and the thing kept breaking off and he had to go back and futz with it and work with it and when he went back one time he was opening up the doors to adjust the antenna and he looks down and he sees this oil slick and that was indicative of a submarine and so we thought okay attack so he runs up to the front and he calls orders you know open the bomb bay doors we're going to attack and as he gets lower all of a sudden he sees these, it look, he said it looked like cucumber bumps and the oil slick. And he, so they went down closer and he said, there's men in the water, there's heads in the water. And at this point, there had been no reports of anyone in the water, whether enemy or you know, allies, they weren't reported. So he didn't know who they were. He just knew there were men in the water and he sees a small group of them. And as he's flying and he's calling this in, ducks on the pond, ducks on the pond, he's seeing more that become hundreds of men in the water. And they're seeing right before them sharks all around these men, still attacking these men. So he's calling in for resources, and other planes are starting to come in. And I'm going to let Lynn tell this part because it's her favorite it's part. It's my favorite part. <laughs> so uh, if you're not familiar with the parameters of the Philippine Sea, there's the uh, Philippines in the west, Guam and the Marianas in the east, and at the bottom there's the Palau Island group. So it's like this giant horseshoe formed out of islands. So um, one of the um, commanders of a patrol of a, of a Ventura squadron, it was actually Lieutenant Gwen's uh, CO, gets this coded message. And he decides, instead of giving it to the code jockeys, because they take forever, he decides to decode it himself. And he sees men in the water. So he goes and he gets this other pilot of a Catalina, which is a, a PBY, which is a, a seaplane. And he says, hey, go on up there. It's probably some you know, pilots that ditched. You're going to need to go in there and circle around until we can send a ship to rescue him. So Marks goes up there and is astonished. Uh, Adrian Marks is the pilot of the PBY. He flies up there and is astonished when he sees hundreds of men in the water. And um, he, too, thinks that it's going to have to be rescue ships that get these men out of the water. Why? Because even though he flies a seaplane, it is dangerous and forbidden for him to land in the open sea. A seaplane is meant for you know, smooth water landing, not when there's 12-foot swells, which is very, very dangerous. So he gets up there, and there is a moment when he's looking down, and he knows that he's going to have to break the rules. And this is what you know, Jason talks about, you know, morality and ethics. You know, when, do you, when do you make these kind of choices? what's um, lawful versus what's, what's moral. And so um, his crew is looking down, and even as they're flying over, they can still see men being eaten by sharks. And Adrian Marks is a lawyer from Indiana. He has already married the daughter of the Indiana Supreme Court Justice. He's already a commander of an aircraft. There is very little in life that he has tried that he hasn't succeeded at. And so he says, you know, I'm in a position to save these men, you know, damn the rules. And so he tells his crew, we're going to land in the water. And they're like, okay, this is going to be dicey. So they strap themselves in. And remember, these are 12-foot swells. And he flies that plane down. I used to be an air traffic controller in the Navy. That's why this is so much fun to me. Um, he flies that plane, and he slams the belly of it into the back of a wave. And the ocean absolutely rejects the plane and sends it 15 feet back into the air. And so he grabs the stick, and he slams it into the wave again. And finally, they land. And as a result of that, he's able to save 53 men um, that, 
many of whom probably would not have lived. And they can't fit 53 men into a PBY Catalina, but the PBY has a, a single airfoil, a wide airfoil for a wing. It has one wing that goes all the way across the fuselage. And they're able to put men up on the wing. There's 1,500 square feet of wing, and so they put men up there and lash them down with parachute cord. And so they're, that's how they're able to get so many men on, on the plane. And remember the guy who said, um, you know what he did? He made a dive. He was, he was one of the men who was rescued. That's uh, Ed Harrell, who is also still living. There's only 13 survivors. He's the last living. Marine, though. He's the last Marine. He's the last living Marine. So. I want to take a second to pause from the story and acknowledge the work that you've done. How did you conduct your research, and what challenges did you experience during researching this project? We had fun researching. We were total nerds and loved going, to, <laughs> loved going to the Naval War College, the archives. We went to Annapolis, um, really spent a lot of time looking for records. Um, we had this great advantage with Lynn's military history and understanding Naval Command to look into certain records that had not been previously looked into before. And that gave us insight to what was happening in the Pacific around Indianapolis because we obviously didn't have her records when she sank. And so, you know, and the last time those records were turned in was early July. So everything after that, including the ship's roster, went down with the ship. So trying to rebuild what was happening around them, um, we had found brand new information that really helped paint a picture. Um, one of the challenges was there was this, uh, it was a court of inquiry that was conducted on August 9th, right after the rescue. And it was, I'll say, the purest testimonies that were given about what had happened. Everything else was a few months later or years later. And so this was something I really, really, really wanted. And I could not get a copy of it. I mean, we talked to the Navy. They said it doesn't exist anymore. We talked to the archival folks. We talked to everyone. We finally get a copy from, I think it was the JAG office in um, DC. And they, it was redacted, the whole thing. And we're like, it's been 70 years. <laughs> I tried to say Freedom of Information Act, and they redacted it less. And then they said they didn't actually have a document that wasn't redacted. And so it turned out that the grandson of Adrian Marks, the rescue pilot who landed, is now... Um, Inspector General. Yeah. And so he went behind the scenes and got it for us. And so he saved the day again. And we were able to get that document because he... He helped us out. So. And I think another challenge to researching this particular story is that there had been at least four major books written about Indianapolis before. But um, the first one being uh, Abandoned Ship, which was the, the 1958 book that Sarah mentioned. And then there was another book in 1990 called Fatal Voyage by a journalist named Dan Kurzman. Um, and then a third book called All the Drowned Sailors, which was written using only primary source documents. The reason that was a challenge is because uh, as, as um, this gentleman over here that we're going to introduce said uh, in a presentation earlier this morning, um, everyone thought that everything that had been, that there was to know about Indianapolis had already been written. In fact, we faced that when we were setting out to write the book. People were like, another book about Indianapolis? Why would you even do that? So there was all this received wisdom, and even among the survivors, 
there was this received wisdom, this you know official story. And so we had to push back against that. And um, one example of that is, is that there was an anti-submarine chase ahead of Indianapolis's path. And even some very respected historians said, well, that was probably not a real sub chase. That sighting was by merchant sailors, and everybody knows that merchant sailors are a bunch of, um, you know, they see a submarine behind every tree, so to speak, and so there probably wasn't really a sub. Well, we were able to go to the National Archives and find out that not only was there a submarine, but a destroyer escort attacked that submarine 15 times right ahead of Indianapolis's path, which made the whole Indianapolis incident even worse because nobody told Indianapolis about that anti-submarine chase right in front of her. Speaking about the survivors, can you describe the quality of life they had in the years uh, and decades after the war? And uh, were there any trends that you uh, saw in them? Uh, did they seem to struggle more or less than men of their peer group or age group? Do you want me to do it? Or? Mm -hmm. they, it affected them differently, but you know this was a different time. They, when they came back and they were rescued, they were told not to talk about it. They were, you know, they had to write home, in fact, from the hospital saying that um, they were still on the ship because it hadn't been announced that it was sunk. So they had to pretend, you know, there's a letter by a man named George Horvath who said, yep, still doing duty, scrubbing decks, and he's in the hospital after being rescued. And so they compartmentalized so much of this when they came home. Some were able to deal with that. Some, you know, put that in a little box and went on to serve incredible careers and lives and have big families. Um, others couldn't. There were several suicides that happened after this. I mean, what the men saw and went through, I can't even imagine, and I've spent 17 years listening to their stories, but to imagine firsthand what that was like, it's unimaginable. And so, you know, they dealt with it, some dealt with it with alcohol, some dealt with it with name the vice, you know, fill in the blank, but it was really in 1960 where, well, the book Abandoned Ship had been written, and then two gentlemen decided, well, we should meet. We should, you know, talk about this. And so they formed a reunion, and in 1960, they had their first reunion, and Captain McVeigh actually went to this reunion, and he was scared to death to come to this because he thought all the men hated him because this is, you know, he'd been painted as a villain by the Navy, and so... He was scared to come to this, but he comes and he's welcomed with open arms. And you know, he walks off the plane and there's a line of men and they salute him, captain on deck. And this was the first time these men could talk about it. And that really, that's where the resilience and the comeback came from was because they, they were the only other people in the world who went through the same thing and knew how to talk about it, how to deal with it, to understand it. You know, they had had nightmares. They were, their wives would talk about the violent nightmares they'd have where they were fighting off sharks and each other in their sleep. And they could talk about it. And that was where many of them said that was the first time the nightmare stopped. And so they started living by sharing the story. And that really helped. Um, I think that that... I think that the general ethos of the culture also helped with the resilience of these men. Um, I'm sorry, maybe this isn't politically correct, but I get the sense that a lot of you are not politically correct. Um, I am so tired of this, uh, oh, poor me, victim mentality, and that's the narrative that we have today as a culture, where if you suffer something tragic, if you, if you uh, come up against obstacles, then, you know, then you're a victim. 
Well, the ethos of the 1940s and 50s was not like that, that there's a reason that we call these men the greatest generation, and the reason is because not only of the, their sacrifice, but of how, how they bore up when they came home. They didn't come home and try to get in, you know, get book deals and, and movie deals and um, say, you know, how, how terrible they had it. They all knew that they had a job to do, they had sacrifices to make, and they made them. And I, so I think that the general cultural atmosphere around tragedy and struggle was different and really probably fostered resilience more than it does today. Your research and your work suggests that this catastrophic ordeal at sea was not the last major battle for the men of the Indianapolis. Why not? Well, I think like we've just touched on coming home and readapting and figuring out what they were going to do was part of it. But then, you know, we didn't go into it a lot. But when, when they came home, the captain was ultimately court-martialed for the sinking. And this was the first time a captain was court-martialed for the loss of a vessel during wartime. So there was this crew who saw their captain be scapegoated for something they knew he didn't do. And then, you know, these letter, the captain had received all these letters um, from families on holidays, on, you know, the anniversary of the sinking from the wives, from the children. You took my father. It's your fault. My, my son is not here celebrating Christmas with me. Or all these letters kept piling up, and ultimately McVeigh took his life in 1968. And it was really then, you know, that the, the crew kind of started rallying together to fight for their captain's name to clear him. And for 50 years, they fought. They wrote letters. They did everything they could to try to right a wrong. And, you know, they, it took until recent, was 1998, well, a little bit earlier, where others got involved to help rectify this. But that was a struggle that they had is, you know, the captain was found guilty, but they looked at it as they, they were guilty, too, because of this um, conclusion. And I know a couple of you have already read the book. Raise your hand if you've already read the book. Yay. So there is a character in the book named uh, Commander Bill Toady. And he's a character in real life as well. And he's here today. Would you stand up, Bill? This is uh, Commander. He's uh, Captain Bill Toady now, USN, retired, and he was instrumental in the exoneration of Captain McVeigh. And so, as Sarah was saying, you know, that the, the fight to exonerate their captain was a battle that these men fought for 50 years. And talk about resilient. Um, over and over and over, the Navy affirmed the court-martial findings. Over and over and over, they said, uh, this was a legally sound, it was a just result, and um, then the, the, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people would have just gone away and said, okay, I guess that's the way it is. But the survivors of Indianapolis never gave up, and then they had help. They had, uh, interestingly enough, um, a 12-year-old boy named Hunter Scott came along and brought a lot of attention to Captain McVeigh's uh, case in the 1990s. And in addition to that, then um, Captain Toady came along too. Would you like to add anything to the story at this point? Just that's, I would say real quickly, um, the, one of the things that uh, allowed these guys to be so, so resilient is they turned their sadness into, I would say, anger. 
right, over the, over the um, court-martial of their captain. And it was a controlled anger. It wasn't a, you know, we're going we're gonna to get back at these people. It was, we're angry that this happened to our captain, and we're going to get activate and get and do something about it. Um, I went to school here a few, mi a few miles from here, a few years after McVeigh, um, and uh, I was the 10th and final captain of the submarine USS Indianapolis. McVeigh was the 10th and final captain of the cruiser Indianapolis, and the survivors really just kind of drafted me into their um, uh, little cabal to try to uh, get their captain exonerated. And, and I would say that even before they did that, um, inviting the survivors to the decommissioning my ship was a, uh, was a bit of a, a move that the Navy didn't expect because they had been creating a lot of <clears throat> hate and discontent uh, over the, the, the uh, issue of the, um, of the exoneration. And so I started getting heat from the Navy even while I was in command before I actively involved myself with the <clears throat> exoneration. Um, at one point, I was pulled aside and said, so if you want to stay, if you want a future in the Navy, you need to learn how to be a company man. And that was kind of an uh, eye-opening uh, conversation for me. And uh, needless to say, um, you know, it didn't, it was not an issue. Here's a, we didn't talk about it yet, but in 1968, McVeigh ended up committing suicide. And, you know, there's no doubt that it was over this issue. The, the sinking and the court-martial and things like that. And so there was no doubt that, you know, given McVeigh's history and, and, and the way he was treated, or me being a company man, which way <clears throat> I was going to decide to do. So I wasn't the leading factor for the exoneration. I was <clears throat> one of many people that was involved in the exoneration, but it was my privilege to be involved. Thank you. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> You know, the, the, the final story of the exoneration is, is toward the back of the book, and it really reads like a spy novel because, you know, I, I really think that Captain Toady is being a little bit uh, humble because he, he may not have been the leading factor, as he puts it, but he was definitely a deciding factor, I would say. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if we dissect, uh, or can you set the stage for the 1946 court-martial and was this a common occurrence after a naval vessel has been torpedoed? Um, how do we it was a, a never occurrence. Uh, no other captain of a vessel lost in combat in World War II was court-martialed. And so the question for decades was, why did Fleet Admiral Ernest King choose to court-martial Captain McVeigh? And as Bill was talking about earlier today, when we were at a presentation, coincidentally, uh, a few miles from here where Bill was speaking about Indianapolis, um, there were theories all through the years. Why did the fleet admiral decide to court-martial McVeigh? One theory was that uh, there was a, the father of an ensign who was lost at sea who was very angry at McVeigh and that he, uh, he was very well-connected. And so he used political pressure to get that to happen. But that didn't seem right because Admiral Ernest King was, you know, kind of a hard ass and there was no way he's going to let the father of an ensign boss him around. Um, and then another theory was that King was trying to get back at McVeigh because McVeigh's father, the Admiral, had once represent, reprimanded King when he was a, a young uh, officer. And that didn't make sense either. What, what we really believe today, just, just 
uh, based on the dissection of the documentary evidence and who King was as, as an officer and as a person is that um, there was a whole lot of blame to go around for the sinking of Indianapolis, particularly the loss of life in the water, because only about 300 men were lost uh, when the ship went down, it is estimated, and another 100 or so uh, that first day. But if rescue had come when it should have come, because of, which it didn't because of the intelligence failures and the communication failures and the failure to warn about submarines in the area, um, if it had come, then we would have had maybe um, 400 lost, not 900 lost. And so all of that death toll accrued to some very high-ranking people, um, Admiral George Murray in Guam, uh, Commodore Gillette in Leyte, even some on uh, Admiral Nimitz's intelligence staff. And there was even evidence that intelligence about the sinking had actually come to the combat intelligence officer who worked directly for Admiral King. So here we are at the very end of the war. Uh, it's a glorious victory. And now Admiral King can either pin this horrible loss of life on the lowest ranking person in the whole gig, which is the captain, uh, or he can drag all these leading lights of the Pacific War out into open court. All these people that are being feeded as heroes, I'm telling you, we have pictures of admirals signing autographs. These guys were rock stars. And so we really believe that the reason for the court-martial was that Admiral King was trying to protect these heroes of the war. We were a lot less of an iconoclastic uh, culture back then. Their Watergate hadn't happened, and so the journalists were not trying to take down everybody in sight. And so we think it was the, um, the admirals protecting each other. Lynn, you're um, obviously a U.S. Navy veteran, and you've written several other books about military units and military leaders. Do you think the betrayal of Captain McVeigh by the Navy is an isolated event? And if not, how do you think leaders can prepare to wage a career of, uh, a career without fa falling prey to cynicism? I'm sorry. Um, I don't think it's an isolated incident. I've written a couple of other books that are about this very kind of thing, uh, the, the, the legal or public persecution of leaders who are trying to do what is ethically right, what is morally right, versus what is necessarily the letter of the law. And unfortunately, um, the way the military is structured, especially today with the big military industrial complex, um, there is a certain point of no return for uh, career officers, and the farther and farther they get removed from, from the battlefield, um, the more and more they are concerned with policy versus operations, or strategy versus tactics, and sometimes, uh, and I, I hate to say it, but it's, I'll just say it because it's true, preservation of career over what's best for you know, the men and women who are serving. And so how do you prevent uh, becoming cynical? Um, I don't know that I have an answer to that other than that, that I don't think that there's any kind of a prescription that works for everybody other than to uh, develop and thoroughly understand what your own ethics are. You know, what is it that drives you? What are your core principles? What are your values? 
Um, so for example, I wrote a book called Dog Company, which is about a heavy weapons company that got involved in a um, false detainee abuse scandal in Afghanistan. And so the moral question in that book came down to um, a, a, a company commander, an army captain, having to choose between um, the rule of military law concerning the treatment of detainees versus the lives of his men. If he chooses the lives of his men, he's going to lose his career. And it's the only career he's ever had and the only career he ever wanted. And so, you know, how, how do you make that ethical choice? Um, there's a lot of people who would choose the rule of military law. And, you know, people would argue that's not a wrong choice. But, you know, coming down to cynicism, I think that you, you can grow cynical about this whole uh, power structure, but I think if you, if you are guided by your own true north compass of your own ethics and your own core principles, that's how you make your way through those kind of situations. Can you walk us through how Captain McVeigh was actually exonerated? That's a long answer. Uh, <laughs> Bill? <laughs> Actually, yeah. I would say that there, was, there were a whole bunch of factors at play here. The first of which was the 12-year-old um, boy that was referred to, named Hunter Scott, who's now, by the way, just selected for lieutenant commander in the Navy helicopter pilot. Um, Hunter was absolutely pivotal, pivotal in getting the nation's attention focused back on this story. And he was doing this in the 1996 time frame when he was a 12-year-old kid. He was on Letterman, he was on Nightly News, um, you know, he was uh, born to do this. And once the, the nation's attention was focused on the issue itself, that got Congress emboldened to act. Then what they needed was the rationale for the, just, for, for the exoneration. And, and that's the, the small part that I played was in there. Um, you know, I was able to demonstrate that it wouldn't have mattered whether he was zigzagging or not, he still would have been sunk. So take, knowing that, and the, the technical charge he was convicted of was hazarding his vessel by failing to zigzag. And if failing to zigzag didn't hazard his vessel because he would have been sunk anyway, then the, then the specifications kind of evaporate. And so Congress passed a law, a resolution, which declared him innocent for the sinking of the ship uh, in 1999, in, oh, actually the year 2000, and, uh, and I got to enter that language in McVeigh's service record in May 2001. But not before a lot of pushback from the Navy, who still didn't want to do it. <laughs> Sarah, as a historian, what do you think American history, specifically U.S. naval history, tells us about resilience physically, mentally, morally? I think in simplest terms, I mean, we are more capable of things than we believe we are, and we're stronger than we think we are. I think history has taught us that we can come back from pretty much anything, but it's really the group that are your support system that you can rely on um, to get us through it. I mean, the survivors, they survived as groups. They, you know, connected, they came back and talked and had community, and that's what got them through the second part of their story, which was not just surviving the water, but surviving, you know, after, the aftermath. They didn't, there wasn't um, diagnosed PTSD then. It was just deal with it. And so they had that community, and I think history shows us that resilience comes in the form of letting 
letting yourself rely on others to get through when those times are tough. You know, I mean, Moses even had people holding his arms up to keep, you know, to win the battle. And so we're not in it alone. And to, you have to allow yourself to be weak enough to rely on others, which actually makes you stronger. Anything else you want to add about your work and research and what it tells us about resilience? Well, um, I was sharing this with Jason last night. Um, I'm working actually on a book right now called Your Weakness is Your Strength. And it examines the, this, this sort of oxymoronic idea that the, the very things that we think are weak are actually hidden strengths. And, and you actually see it all over the place. So I'm going to quiz you, like, so just call out the answer. So um, you're kind of buff. So, so in your, <laughs> so your, so your bicep, right? All of the strength that y any one of us in this room will ever have in our bicep is already there. You, you don't add anything to it. As a matter of fact, what do you have to do to your bicep to make it stronger? You have to tear it. You have to break it down. Everything that is the potential, all the strength potential, is already in there. And so in terms of re resilience, I mean, we have the plasticity as humans, and this is what I'm learning through my research, uh, this idea of plasticity is not only that we can bounce back to, to where we were before, that we can bounce back and be stronger than we were before, just like when we put stress on our, on our bicep. I mean, we see this in the physical world everywhere, and um, we see it in ourselves. And so... I think that it's important for us as a culture to return to this idea um, that um, stress and trial and tragedy are not anomalies. Uh, they happen to everyone, and, and life is, is not um, a straight line that's you know, broken by these anomalous dips, but it's more like a sine wave where we go up and down and up and down, and if we learn to exploit those downtimes, the, the weakness, the stress, the tragedy, um, that we can become even better than we were before. Anything to add? She said it better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to make time for Q&A. So, okay. ladies and gentlemen, they are selling their book, Indianapolis, outside. And where can people go to watch the documentary? Um, I do have copies if anyone still has DVD players. Um, <laughs> but it's on Amazon Prime and it will be on Netflix, so it's called USS Indianapolis, The Legacy. If you see the Nicolas Cage version, just keep scrolling. <laughs> and if you, if you watch it on Amazon Prime, Sarah gets 12 cents. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now let's break into your work groups, <laughs> not take 10. <laughs> and then we'll come back and have a Q&A. I'm gonna wrap up with a Q&A. Hopefully you've had a chance to discuss and form some questions. This chair has been turning me to the right. <laughs> All right, does anybody wanna come up, volunteer? First question for Lynn and Sarah. Come on up to the microphone if you don't mind. I'd actually like to ask a question of the, the <laughs> We knew the it. <laughs> yes. Um, so obviously, based on some of the recollections of people that have read the book, you, you had a decision to make and you, you chose to, to support the, the captain. And there was, a, there was a concern that it was going to suffer, your career was going to suffer from it. Obviously, you're still able to make captain, but I was curious about some of that diversity and, or adversity that you have 
had to face afterwards and you know were there people that helped you get through that or some of those sorts of things <laughs> the microphone stand my height here <laughs> These guys were in the water for almost five days. You know, hundreds of them died. Uh, the captain went through unbelievable <coughs> torment. Um, as I said, I got to know his sons. Don't you think they laid, laid a guilt trip on me? Um, there, was, there was no question as to what I was going to do. I mean, that, that wasn't, although she did try to talk me out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, were there any re repercussions afterwards? I, you know, I got the, it was between the time that I published the article about uh, Captain McVeigh and, and the actual exoneration was when, it was when I got sat down and, and um, you, you know, it might have been after, the, no, it might have been after the exoneration. There was a period of time between the exoneration and what was referred to earlier about it, getting in, in McVeigh's service record, the Navy even fought that. When Clinton was president, his Secretary of the Navy wouldn't allow the language to be entered in McVeigh's service record. It wasn't until George Bush became president and Gordon England became Secretary of the Navy that they allowed me, they allowed us to enter the language, but there was a period of time in there when, when I'm, that might have been when they sat me down and said, you need to be, because the survivors started this letter writing campaign, unless Captain Toady tells us that, that, that uh, McVeigh's record has been cleared, we're not gonna believe you, right? <laughs> And so that's when I got, I think I got the lecture around that time. But no, there was, there was never any doubt that it was going to do it. Nobody then later came and said, okay, this is your punishment. That never happened. I still was, I was, I was promoted to captain somewhere in that time. I still served as Commodore of a submarine squadron. I can't say that, it, that I can point to empirical evidence that it harmed my career. I actually didn't wait to find out. I retired from the Navy before there might have been evidence because I wanted a viable second career. So it all worked out. I'm not worried. <laughs> Another question? Uh, first of all, just thank you guys both for coming here, and also, sir, thank you for, for joining us on short notice. Uh, I was wondering if in all of your forensic research, if you were able to find any kind of data points as to the demographics of the survivors. I, I understood and appreciate what you were saying earlier about them drawing on their faith, in, but in terms of like, these guys had families, and they were 60% more likely to go home versus guys that were single, guys that grew up swimming versus not swimming, if there was, if there was any kind of hard data points like that you guys were able to find? Um, most of the survivors were younger men, but that wasn't exclusive. What it really was is this mindset that they were coming home. Like, everyone that we talked to said, I wasn't gonna die out there. And I'm sure there were men that thought that, that perished, whether a shark or something, but there was this, they said they had this hope. They said that they, they just didn't believe they could die. And they were going to last out there until, nothing, you know, until they couldn't. But they weren't going to give up. So that more was the common thread than a type of person or a, you know, 
ethnicity or you know build or age it was really the mentality that I will survive this damn it and they did so to bounce off that point uh, Kathleen that I work with one of my mentors he gave me a book it's on the, my desk every day at home World War II survivors lessons in resilience and it was phenomenal in the sense that they interview all of these veterans from all aspects of the war. Um, you know, guys that were um, um, trying to think the large march in World War II right before the war started. Do you remember? B Baton. Thank you, right. Baton. So they get guys right from the beginning all the way through. Mm -hmm. One of the big questions that you hit on was faith. I'm a Catholic kid, Jesuit eight, you know, schooling of eight years. Um, that was one of the biggest things that in this book, repetitively, these guys drive home the fact of how important their faith was. The other point being, and I, I'm really glad you talked about the greatest generation, so many of them are predisposed to the depression, which gave them tremendous tools, probably not even aware of it, that they had predisposition to self-sacrifice, community, their men, basically their family, how they had to give up food to make a family of eight work with one loaf of bread. So um, I'm really glad you highlighted that. Maybe you can expand on that. But I really resonate with the faith and the hope point and, and how that is resonated through so many of those guys that got through the war, but ironically have very little PTSD, mm -hmm. which is a big right. subset of that book, right. which I found pretty shocking. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that a way to expand on it is to contrast it with what's going on today. So they had just come through a depression, as you pointed out. As a matter of fact, there was um, one uh, sailor named, it was Don McCall, right? Mm -hmm. Don McCall with the $18 a month. Yes. Yeah. So, so Don um, grew up in the depression. Uh, his father died when he was 10 years old. His mother went to work for the Works Progress Administration, and there was never enough money, and there was never enough food. Um, and so when he joined the Navy, it was actually the first time he ever remembered having enough to eat. And he was thrilled to be paid $18 a month. I mean, he, it, he was so excited. And if you contrast that with today, there is a lot of affluence. Um, even the, the poorest among us, and, and I'm not including the homeless here, but you know, uh, lower socioeconomic strata, there's still a certain standard of living, right? Um, you know, you, you have usually a roof, a roof over your head. You, you might have a car, but if you don't, you probably have public transportation. You have public programs to provide you with, you know, basic sustenance. And um, even when you step up higher in the socioeconomic ladder, there, you know, you, you get, go from the lower economic classes to the middle class, upper middle class, and even into this whole sense of entitlement. So there's a contrast between people who understood what it was like to make do and, and to do without and to sacrifice to today, I don't think there's as much of that. And it's interesting if you were to take a look at how that correlates or contrasts with resilience, I think you would find some very interesting data. Captain, uh, did your uh, education at the Naval Academy, like what role did that play, like the understanding of the classics and of ethics? Had you not attended the Naval Academy, would you have been as prepared or, or determined to execute the, your, your decision? 
No. <laughs> I mean, this place is formative in so many different ways. Uh, you know, I, I hated it when I was here, right? But the moment I graduated, I was so proud. And absolutely, I mean, it, the, the lessons that you learn here, the historical lessons you learn about the great leaders, um, not just in the Navy, great national leaders. And how many great national leaders, I'm not you're talking Navy leaders, have come from this place? I mean, John McCain being one of the most prominent and poignant examples. So um, it was uh, extremely, you know, I was a Boy Scout when I was you know, in high school and things like that. But none of that had the impact of going to the Naval Academy. And so um, I give this place all the credit that it deserves. He was an Eagle Scout. <laughs> <laughs> Should I tell about the Charles uh, I also wanted to echo uh, his sentiments. Thank you for writing the book, all the research you put into it, uh, all the work you did, and the exoneration. Uh, I also had a question for you, Captain, as far as when um, you created the murder board questions. Um, and those were the ones that could not be answered. And uh, your boss went home Friday night, and then Saturday you received that call that he was going to toe the line, if I'm accurate in that. And the dilemma that, can you just speak more to that and the feelings that you uh, went through, and if that helped build resilience and maybe the moral dilemma as well? Um, Lynn, did, Lynn and Sarah did a wonderful job describing that sequence of events down to the football game that I was watching. I, she, and I couldn't remember that. She had to go look up what game Navy was playing, Kent State. And now, now, I, now I know. But, you know, I do remember sitting on the couch. I remember the phone. I remember the scene in our, in our family room where I was sitting when the phone rang. I remember answering the phone. And I remember basically falling flat on my face, in essence, when I heard what I heard. Admiral Pilling telling me that he wasn't going to go with the, what I thought was very balanced, nuanced testimony for the Senate hearings and reverting back to the 1945 power party line. And I agonized over that for years, even calling him, sadly, he died um, late 2000s, I can't remember the date exactly, of cancer. And when I found out he was, he was sick, I called him just to find out what the heck happened and he wouldn't tell me. And so uh, if he, he was falling on a sword, he wasn't going to, um, again, another Naval Academy graduate. He was, uh, you know, whether, whether or not he did the, I'm not going to say that. Um, he wasn't going to blame anybody else. He told me that it was his call. Do I believe that? Um, I'm, not, I'm not so sure. I know that there were a lot of lawyers who wanted him to say what he said. and. Uh, and I didn't like the way it played out. But it was in the end, again, as I said earlier, it all worked out. In your all's research, during the time of talking to the survivors, uh, as a result of the dehydration and you know, the, the hysteria that some of them were experiencing, did any of them discuss about when they were actually rescued, about how they mentally processed that that was reality, that they were now safe? And if, and if there were issues during your research, did you find from anybody that were on the vessels that actually rescued the survivors, how did they treat or you know, handle that, that problem? 
actually, yeah, that um, the survivors really weren't able to talk about the last day and the hours that they were picked up. They were so out of their heads by that point, so close to death, that that part of the story was really conveyed by the rescue team. And so we interviewed quite a few of the rescue crew. And what they had talked about is, uh, in the initial rescue, you know, when they're pulling up to, this is after the planes had landed, or the plane had landed, and the men are being pulled out of the water, you know, um, the Bassett arrived, this is the USS Bassett. And there's a whole story that happened surrounding that. But once they get in the water and they start pulling men out, they still don't know they're Americans. They don't know who they are. They could be Japanese. Because they're covered with the fuel oil. Right. And, um, you know, they, the gentleman by the name of Peter Wren pulls up, you know, he has his revolver and he pulls it out and he sees these men. He said, who are you and what ship are you from? And the response is, just like a dumbass officer asking dumbass questions. <laughs> and, and so he says, that's when I knew they were Americans. And, um, and so, the, you know, some of them, you know, had it, you know, they were still a little bit with it, but, you know, they're pulling these men out and they're pulling their skin off of them and they're trying to do everything they can. And uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Van Wilp actually jumped in the water and for hours, pushed men up onto the boat. He was a big, big guy, kind of football guy, pushing in the water. And he dislocated both shoulders doing this and kept doing it. And as he's doing this, you know, these men can't care for themselves. They had instances where they put them on the boat and they felt that these are the LCVPs, the little kind of whale boat. They fell off the boat as they were, you know, motoring them back to the ship. So the men were not able to care for themselves. And that's where the rescuers tell the stories about how they had to treat them like babies. Like, and the men, you know, they wanted water. And so they would grab any water that could come that was given to them. Well, they could only take baby sips of this. So they had to give them, you know, teaspoons of water and juice and then kind of wean them onto foods. And I don't think it was days before they could have food, but liquids mostly. And then they had to, you know, if you saw in the, the trailer, there was the picture with the guy covered in the oil. Well, they had to get that off using gasoline. And so they're giving them these showers. And none of these ships were prepared for um, the, the rescue efforts. So these men were giving them their own undershirts and skivvies because most of the crew was naked because they were sleeping in the buff in the middle of the Pacific. It's hot. You know, they're a bunch of guys out on the deck and the torpedo hit, so they're in the water totally naked. So they had to be cared for that way. And they're sun blistered and just in the worst, worst shape you could imagine. And in the documentary and in the book, we talk a lot about that care. But it was you know, mental care, it was physical care. And we didn't get to talk about the rescue plane, but that was actually scuttled. Um, and a lot of the guys, when that was fired, the plane was fired upon after they'd all been transferred onto the rescue ship, um, they thought they were being sunk again. So they had more trauma dealing with that. So they kind of had to be settled down. So there's, I mean, this was an ordeal. And then when they arrive at the hospitals, they had to receive that kind of care. And, um, you know, there wasn't really mental, you know, care at that time, but more so that the nurses stepped in and really became their caretakers. And they received so many proposals of marriage from these <laughs> nurses just because they really knew that their lives depended on them and they cared for them so genuinely. Uh, in your research and talking to the survivors, I know they have a reunion and all that. Did there seem to be any subset of the group that 
just shut down and didn't want to talk about it and were still angry about it years later? Well, there were, the whole group didn't want to talk about it in the beginning. Uh, there were uh, s children that didn't learn that their fathers had been on this ship until the movie Jaws came out. And uh, the Robert Shaw character does his famous monologue uh, where he talks about, you know, 1,100 men went into the water, the sharks took the rest, that whole thing. And so in 1975, when, when Jaws came out, kids would go to the theater, they would come home, they knew their dad had served in the Navy, and they would say, hey, I just saw this amazing scene about this ship, the USS Indianapolis, is, is that a real story? And mom would say, go ask your dad, he was on that ship. And so um, over, it wasn't until the reunion, as Sarah said, that they really began talking about it. But then, even then, really mostly to each other because there wasn't anybody else that could really relate to it. Um, and then, uh, but it was, you know, as public interest grew, uh, more and more men began to share about their stories. Um, and then, you know, just so I can brag about Sarah, the 17-year relationship she formed with the survivors really caused a lot of the men to open up and tell really heinous parts of the story that they had sworn to keep bottled up forever. And uh, so she knows some things that I don't even know because she won't tell me. What's, what's <laughs> up with that? Um, but, but to your question, there are men who did go to their graves never having talked about it. So, mm -hmm. so it's kind of a combination of, of all the things you mentioned. So much so that their kids actually questioned us and said, oh, that can't be true. And it was. And they, you know, they said there were some stories, like Lynn mentioned, that I'll never tell because they said never tell. And there were others that said, we don't want this to go away. We don't want it to be forgotten. It's okay. you know, everyone that was involved is gone now. You can know the story and you can share it. And so we did. standpoint of uh, resilience, there was a lot of individual and collective resilience at, at, at many levels, given the amount of people who went to water at different times and different things they had to go through. Um, and so it was, it's pretty obvious that from a, a group standpoint, they, they were all struggling um, from basically 45 through 1960 for the most part, it seems like individually, then they obviously came together and it was, it was evident that that, that group um, aspect of things helped a lot of them through or parts of the recovery stages um, but more so on the on the initial uh, initially when they were still in the water um, did any of them speak to the fact that the others being there landed like a, basically like an emotional support added resilience while they were actually in the water trying to go through this whole ordeal and also as they started to uh, I guess lose their capacities uh, emotionally and mentally as the days went on did any of them happen to uh, mention the fact that them being together kept them going? Talk about the uh, red main group versus the other groups. Are you okay? <laughs> we had to sidebar here. Um, <laughs> yes, to answer your question um, in a couple ways, um, when they were in the water, many of the men talked about anybody who was on their own didn't survive. They, you know, I mean, there were examples where there would be a stray 
sailor here and there, but for the most part, staying in groups kept them alive. And as they, they made deals with each other, even in pairs, where they said, okay, I'm gonna sleep for a little bit, and then you sleep for a little bit, and I'll watch you, and you watch me. And those were the survivors. I mean, they said that you know they would slap each other around to keep them coherent. Or if someone tried to drink water, they would, you know, you're allowed to punch me if I if I start drinking. These kind of things. And time and time again, there's stories of buddies that kept each other alive. That they made a pact that they would do anything they could to keep each other alive. Or they would be the one that would go tell their mom if the other guy didn't make it. Um, there was also two big groups in the water. There was the red main group, and then there was the swimmer group. And the red main group was, they had the most supplies. They went off the side of the ship. They went off the, the starboard lower side, so all the supplies slid off. So they had rafts, they had some rations, they had floater nets, and there was the most fighting in that group. They were... Um, the most dishonor. The, yeah, the most dishonor. The, the leaders were not leaders in that group, as they should have been, and the most chaos, the most violence, the most horrific stories happened in that group. In the swimmer group, they had nothing. Some had life jackets. Most of all, they had the line that Lynn spoke about earlier, and they relied on each other. They had nothing to fight over except to keep each other alive, you know, and they... And they had the leadership of Captain Park. Yeah, they had the leadership of Captain Park, Father Conway, the, the chaplain, and um, Dr. Haynes, and they were those men swam around man to man. Captain Park exhausted himself and died, same as Father Conway, but they kept the group together, they kept them unified, and that's really what they credit with being the largest rescued group, was that very yeah, thing. So a huge contrast in leadership, because the senior officer in the Redmayne group was Richard Redmayne, and he did not even declare himself an officer until chaos had broken out and the chain of command had completely broken down and by then it was too late. You know, so you contrast that with Captain Park, Father Conway, and Dr. Haynes who did exert leadership and not, and not um, you know, uh, declarative giving orders type of leadership but, but caring for the men and, and even sacrificing themselves to make sure the other men survived. So a huge contrast between the resilience of one group and the, and the, um, the uh, presence of of ethical leadership. I think on that note, <laughs> as we wind down, I just want to say thank you, uh, not just for being here today, but for the work that you've done, leaving an indelible mark on U.S. history. Oh, really, thank I, com you. I commend you. And thank you for taking the time to be here today on last minute notice. This is amazing <laughs> to have you here today. Um, I just want to let everybody know that they're selling their book Indianapolis outside, but they're going to be wrapping up shortly. So if you want to grab a copy, head out and do that right now. Thank you, ladies. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much. What were your thoughts following the discussion with Lynn and Sarah? They complement each other really well. You know, Lynn is masterful at telling a story. Sarah just has an eye for detail. I mean, you know, she, she is, after all, a historian. And they weave together this story that uh, isn't really – I mean, these are both proud patriots. Um, mm. Lynn, Lynn is a, is a, is a Navy vet her, herself. Certainly not the U.S. Navy's probably finest, finest hour. But they, they wrote a, a story about this incredible group of, of sailors – 
who in in endured arguably one of the most traumatic events in, in U.S. naval history and lived to tell about it. And I think not surprising, two days into this event, having heard from Bonanno and so many other thought leaders about resilience, is that by and large, an overwhelming majority of the Indianapolis survivors went on to live meaningful lives, high, highly functioning mm -hmm. citizens mm -hmm. and, and civilians. One thing I want to point out is that since this was more of a one-on-one -on -one conversation that I had with Lynn and Sarah during the break, is Sarah Vladek cultivated such meaningful and important relationships with the survivors of the USS Indianapolis. And Lynn did such a masterful job helping to effectively tell their stories. Without their efforts, we would have lost so much more than already was lost with the Indianapolis. And they accomplished something very special. So it was a wildly profound moment to have them in the room telling these stories that really changed history. Yeah, absolutely. Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.